So if I look back on my entire career and I think about diversity really from all of its dimensions, but on an organization-wide basis, it's really about creating an environment where everybody can bring their best capabilities to the table. More specifically, when I look at critical projects, innovation, more diverse teams can be more challenging to start as you're bringing people from different backgrounds. But as you move forward, you're going to have better ideas from more diverse places and you're going to innovate faster. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. So today we're talking with a transformational leader who's seen the evolution and growth of some of the world's most iconic brands. And I have to say, in my opinion, some of the world's coolest brands. He's led that growth by creating purpose-driven, diverse cultures where he's worked to realize the concept of doing well by doing good. Now, Clark, I have to share a story here that will explain quite why I am so excited to meet our guest. Um, After my MBA around 2009, 2010, I was traveling to the U.S. a lot, almost on a weekly basis, um, different cities around the U.S. And that's when I became familiar with Jamba Juice. And I have to say, I actually became addicted to it so much so that I was choosing my hotels based on their proximity to a Jamba Juice store. Um, 2010, I had the privilege of spending my birthday in New York. My brother and his family were living there. And um, lo and behold, my seven-year-old niece threw a surprise birthday party. That was a Jumbo Juice party. And they had got (laughs) gallons and gallons of my favorite smoothie, Razzmatazz. To this day, that is one of my most memorable birthdays. I am super excited. Tell us who we're meeting and uh, tell us a bit more about our guest. Well, I'm I'm a little daunted. I you know I drank all of it after spin classes and soul cycle classes, et cetera, to try and uh, get me into better and better shape. So I think we come at it from two different ways. I need a birthday party though, for sure. Our guest today is James White, as you heard, the former chair, president, and CEO of Jamba Juice. James serves on the board of Honest Company, where he's chair on the board of Air Protein and Directors Academy. He's been very outspoken about it's a people first approach and that empathy leads to successful action. So I think we can learn a fair bit, all of us today, about that. James, thank you for joining us on Redefiners. Thank you for having me. Just delighted to be here. Fantastic. Um, James, you've obviously had some amazing roles at well-known corporates like Safeway, Gillette, Coca-Cola, Nestle. But let's start with your earlier life, you were the first member in your family to graduate college. Tell us about how important going to college was and what your upbringing was like. That's the perfect place to kind of start my story, kind of foundational 
to really everything that I've been able to do professionally is this kind of the start of my uh, earlier life in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, working class background. And as you mentioned, first member of my family to graduate uh, from college, which was really, really an important part of my story. It's an important part of how I think about leadership and what's possible for individuals. And James, what led you to go to college in the first place? Was that you? Were there external factors? In some ways, the the most fantastic coach, mentor, leader was actually my mom. If I look at myself as of uh, my fourth grade self, uh, I was in a chaotic uh, classroom. That year, never had a permanent teacher, four or five substitute teachers. And I watched my mom intervene uh, that year, and it really changed my entire life. So I ended up in the uh, slower track class in the fifth grade because I was an introverted student, but I watched my mom's empathy and care and kind of passion uh, and involvement, and that, sh- that shaped uh, really everything else that happened uh, after that moment in time. It shaped me as a leader not to underestimate other human beings and really work to unlock the full potential in everybody that I work with. And I've, mm-hmm. I've used that multiple times in my career. And, and more recently, after finishing as CEO at Chamba, I did a, a year-long fellowship at Stanford, uh, their Distinguished Careers Institute, where I was literally a student. So people like, well, James, were you an instructor or a professor? I was actually a student. So I was with undergrads and graduate students for a a full year. And it was intentional. I wanted to use that to further contemporize my own experience. I'd worked in older line businesses and I knew I had a high interest in working in more tech oriented uh, businesses as a board member. uh, And it worked out beautifully. It's interesting. We, uh, we have a discussion in our firm. Everyone's talked about IQ. That was your fourth and fifth grade whether they judged you right or not. And then we talk about EQ as you talk about putting people first at Safeway. And we believe in the world today, LQ, learning quotient, is going to define the merely good from the great leaders if they they can keep learning or want to, and can they embed in their culture a learning culture that LQ will determine the great companies and the great leaders. You're, you're learning, boy, fifth grade to Stanford. Yeah. That's a hell of a journey. I couldn't agree more. What we've tried to do with anti-racist leadership is really underscore that it is a journey to get this work. It's going to be an ever-evolving field of work. And as I think about the future of work and leadership, uh, I actually believe anti-racist leadership and understanding that set of capabilities is going to be a requirement. James, I have to say what you also said about your mom, I find hugely touching. Um, may it provide inspiration for us mothers to impact our sons' and daughters' lives positively. Absolutely. Thank um, you. And uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like when you got to college. Was it as you expected? Uh, was it somewhat daunting? W- what were the surprises, if any? Well, I attended public high school in St. Louis, uh, you know, took all the courses that would have been available to me. The one thing I've learned now in hindsight, looking back, the, the curriculum at my high school would have been limited versus some of the peers that would have mm-hmm. been at the University of Missouri. So for many of the folks, the first couple of years would have been more review. 
mm-hmm. for me, much of the material was brand new. So the first two years uh, were more challenging than the last two years for me at the University of Missouri. So that was a huge surprise. And it just speaks to kind of the inequities of yeah. our education uh, system. Uh, you know, and as a 18, 19 year old, you don't have any idea that you're coming into uh, institution disadvantaged versus your colleagues. And then how did going to college change your trajectory or sort of your aspirations? Why then did you get into the world of FMCG and, and retail? My first job hmm. out of college was uh, also in the juice business. So I, I okay. full circle. So I worked for the Coca-Cola company, uh, but I worked in their Minute Maid division. So the beginning of my career and the end of my career, I ended up in and around juice and yeah. beverage. Were there any sort of um, any categories that you were deeply passionate about? For me, just passionate really across my career around healthier uh, food products and, and products that really make a difference in people's lives. And that, that resonates um, with me, James. I started college thinking that I wanted to go into the world of luxury goods. Um, as Clark has often said, I am a big buyer of luxury goods. But actually, I realized that my purpose was more, I wanted to do something more meaningful. And so I've actually focused um, on healthcare. Um, I, I feel that, that that has been my purpose. And I like working with leaders who also have the purpose of, as you say, doing good. So then talk us through your career. So you started with Coca-Cola, Minute Maid. Walk us from there to Jumba Juice. So for me, I'm a a 30-year operating executive. I started my career uh, in commercial sales at the Coca-Cola company and then moved to uh, the Gillette uh, company, was a part of the team that turned around and transformed Gillette, uh, was there through the sale of uh, Gillette to the Procter & Gamble company, and then I switched sectors and moved to the retail sector, joined Safeway stores. And from there was recruited uh, as CEO for Jamba and was uh, chair and CEO there almost eight years. Additionally, I spent 20 years uh, in the in the boardroom. I've sat on 17 plus boards. I've chaired seven of those over, over time. James, before we get into the boards, which 17 boards is astounding, um, when did healthy lifestyle or healthy products become a passion of yours? What part of the journey? Yeah, I think uh, I, I, I point to my time at uh, when I show up at Safeway stores, uh, the, the mission of my work there was to, you know, create a scaled organic brand that could really make a difference and help democratize the access to healthier products. And did Safeway, did the, the senior team, your colleagues, the board, they were like, this is a great move, let's go? Or it was kind of like, let's see what James can do and how, how big was organic at, the, at that time? This was a really big deal and this was a, really a catalyzing moment, not only for Safeway stores, but it was the first time uh, that organic brands were more affordable and more accessible to many consumers. And that was really an important kind of uh, lesson uh, for me uh, as, a, as a leader on you know, what can be done uh, with the appropriate amount of scale and kind of focus on something that's Got important. Got it. There you go. Um, so Jamba Juice, you joined in 2008, right when there's a record loss of almost $150 million. Um, same store sales, I think were dropping by like 8%. And you go through this incredible transformation. Can you walk us through 
that transformation? Well, if I, if I take you back to 2008, uh, and, and you can imagine this first-time CEO, we're in the middle of the uh, Great Recession. I had many of my friends saying, James, we, we knew you wanted to be CEO, but why did you pick this one? Uh, but here's what my thought process was when I looked at the opportunity. Jamba was, has always been a beloved and continues to be a beloved brand. Uh, so I knew that if I could figure out the early moments and keep the company afloat, that we'd be able to really have a successful r- run. Uh, the pitch I made to the board uh, as I interviewed for the job is that um, I build a strategy uh, rooted in people first as a critical component of the work that we do. Fascinating. And we, uh, no pun intended, my three-year strategy was called a blend plan. Uh, where we worked on really changing the menu, accelerating innovation, and really, uh, you know, focusing on operational excellence. But it ended up working well. We turned around the company uh, and and had a fantastic run. And James, when you look back at your time at Jumbo Juice, what are you most proud of? Really very proud of the people uh, and Mm -hmm. and the success that the people have had both uh, continuing at Jamba and the many, you know, leaders that have uh, grown out of Jamba into fantastic leadership uh, roles other places. Uh, couldn't be more proud. There, there's a woman who was a leader at Jamba. She's now the CEO at uh, Juice It Up, a competitor, uh, mm-hmm. Susan Taylor. James, you've talked a lot about purpose and values, and, and it's clear that part of your success um, at Jamba Juice was this very sort of clear purpose that you had of bringing healthy food and making it more accessible. And look, in our business, we're seeing that people are talking a lot about purpose and value, and it's much less around just making money and making profit. Can you tell us how those two words, purpose and values, have impacted your career and approach to leadership? As I think about uh, mission and purpose, I had the great opportunity uh, to work for companies uh, that are making a difference in the world. I've had the opportunity to sit on the board of Panera Bread. I'm a chair of the board today of the Honest Company, um, and I work with a startup that's working on creating the future of meat, air protein, with a dynamic uh, Black woman whose founder, Dr. Lisa Dyson. Uh, so for me, just critically important and kind of guides you know, really all my business choices, especially later in my career. You're such an operator. Did you find it difficult to switch to the governing side of life, to being on the board versus being the chief executive or the president or the division head? I think the biggest thing about the transition for me that that made it easy is I've always been a coach. And in the boardroom, I, I end up playing the role of a coach advisor in lots of cases on many of the boards that I sit on, even as a leader running companies, uh, I, I tended to be more focused on coaching as an operator as well. Got it. We've talked about some great successes at Safeway and at Jamba, and now even looking at Honest and Air Protein. But can you walk us through some of the challenges? Where did it not go well? What happened and how'd you handle it? So if I, if I think about the path that I've walked as a black executive, mm-hmm. uh, And, you know, some of the challenges that I've faced there that might be unique. One of the things that I talk about often is there is a tendency for 
people to ask black executives to prove it again. Yeah. You know, so I've had, I've had challenges across my career where there would be natural opportunities for promotion or pro- progression, at least in my own mind, where I literally needed to prove it again. I needed to have the resiliency to be d- determined to continue to learn and grow and to be persistent enough, you know, not to give up in the face of an initial challenge. And as I've grown in my career and can affect that environment for others, that's one of the things that has, you know, really moved me passionately down this path of trying to create a more equitable environment so people that are following me don't have to prove it again. The other thing that I have experienced really over my career, uh, and it sometimes is shocking for people, I've, I've never in my entire career had anybody to look at my progress and say, James, you uh, haven't done X before. Mm -hmm. You've had so much success. We're going to promote you into Y job. So never been promoted based on potential. And James, how does that change you? I mean, you you brought out the words resilience, determination. Um, It's painful sitting on this side to hear that you had that unfair treatment. But do you think it's made you a better executive as a result of that? Oh, sure. It's made me more prepared for every, every time I step into a, a, a critical role, I'm, I'm actually advantaged because uh, I did need to prove it again. So I've actually kind of been there and seen that. Uh, and it's always made me more resolved to take that into consideration as I look at the talents of other people. Yeah. And, you know, for me as a leader, uh, I, I try to level the playing field and if the idea was to promote people based on potential, we, we promote all people based on an investment in their careers and on potential. Uh, you know, so an unbiasing of the approach to promotions or hiring was a critical focus for me as a leader. We'll be right back with James after a quick word from Tina Shah Pekaday, a DEI advisor with Russell Reynolds Associates in San Francisco. Many organizations struggle to find and retain top diverse executive talent due to a lack of underrepresented groups in the talent pipeline. This makes it difficult for organizations to make quick progress on diverse representation at the senior most level. What if there were a better way? What if instead of ruling candidates out of the running for a role because of a few qualifications they didn't meet, we thought about the differentiated value each candidate could add to our team? Based on years of experience helping organizations find top talent and diversify their executive ranks, Russell Reynolds Associates has developed equitable search practices designed to bring greater equity to the executive hiring process and focus on scoping great talent in. These practices focus on seven key areas designed to eliminate bias and widen the lens through which organizations view talent. Practices like creating a diverse hiring and review team, focusing on the must-have versus nice-to-have requirements in a job specification, interviewing for competencies and not just for roles and titles, and intentional onboarding to equip employees with everything they need to succeed in their new role. By focusing on these key practices, you'll help your organization transform your executive hiring from a process of eliminations to a process of hiring talent with added value. To learn more about these equitable search practices and how to bring greater equity to the executive hiring process, go to www.russellreynolds.com 
forward slash insights. And now back to our conversation with James. So let's talk more about that. Um, let's talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you've always said that that's one of the key pillars um, of success, particularly at Jamba Juice. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how diversity has impacted organizational growth and success specifically? Sort of, cause we, we hear the stats that the greater diversity you have, the better the business performance is likely to be. But tell us tangibly how diversity improves performance, at least in your experience. Yes, if I look back on my entire uh, career um, and I think about diversity really from all of its dimensions, uh, but on an organization-wide basis, it's really about creating an environment where everybody can bring their best capabilities to the table. More specifically, when I look at critical projects, innovation. More diverse teams can be more challenging to start as you're bringing people from different backgrounds. But as you move forward, you're going to have better ideas from more diverse places and you're going to innovate faster. And I've found at least across my career, whether it's at the Gillette Company, at Jamba, or me looking in on the boards that I work with, there's just much greater diversity, much greater innovation driven by more diverse teams with more capabilities. It's an eye-opener. It may be harder to start with more diverse teams, but you can get more innovation and better performance. I don't think people think about the starting mm. and finding common ground. That's kind of interesting. One of the big unlocks for me uh, around just the thinking about diversity was during my time at Nestle Purina, we, we started to reorient the organization to be more cross-functional. So if we just think about the diversity of different functional leaders and how someone from commercial sales would think about the world differently than someone in marketing and someone in IT and operations. Uh, the language is different. How people make decisions is different. You know, so to start, that was really a difficult transition. And we just built a powerhouse of a company uh, at Nestle uh, Purina, you know, once the uh, cross-functional teams really worked. And then you overlay to that uh, gender and ethnic diversity and you've got an accelerator. You've written a book that talking about anti-racist leadership and, and transformation of corporate cultures. Uh, as I'm trying to write a book on sustainable leaders, it's hard enough to write a book, but you wrote a book with your daughter. I did. And how'd that go? I was working on a, a project for one of my boards around the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And uh, fortunately, I invited my daughter to join me on the project, and we found a joint passion for this work. So if you think about intergenerational learning, uh, and we were actually quite good at it, and then we've added uh, this millennial perspective on how she'd think about the company she'd want to go to work for in the future and what the requirements would be for her. So we, we blend those two uh, voices as we've worked through the uh, project for the book. And it's been really the best work of my life to be able to do that for my 29-year-old daughter, Krista. Well, uh, I have a 25-year-old daughter who works with a payments company in San Francisco. And the reverse mentoring that she's given me through this pandemic as we live together and the worst part is, as a CEO at the time, you know, you sadly, 
I speak only for myself, thought I knew what I was talking about. And then a couple of long dinner conversations, you find out you don't actually know what you're talking about when it comes to some more diverse set of eyes. Absolutely. I mean, so much like your daughter being uh, with you during the pandemic, the, the pandemic and the uh, racial reckoning kind of globally, uh, those two events were kind of galvanizing forces for us with the with the book and really shaped uh, our approach. Uh, and we had started the book before uh, 2020, but really the book got galvanized and, and shaped as a result of both of those uh, events. In the book, James, uh, you lay out a plan for how leaders can really get serious about DNI and create a culture that's truly anti-racist. We talk to a lot of clients that aspire to achieve that, but there are many that struggle to put together a concrete and tangible action plan. What tips would you have? What, what, are, what are some of the key components uh, of the plan that you would advise companies if, if they want to achieve that? I think the main thing that we've tried to do with the book is we try to demystify taking action. Uh, thing that we do believe foundationally is that the uh, CEO, uh, she must be involved uh, in the process. So you can't delegate culture. Yeah, I think we all have to start where we are and do a really thorough audit of where the company sits today. And then I think, think about the future. This is always going to be a multi-year journey mm-hmm. and like anything else in business is important. If it matters, you measure it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the examples that we give in the book, uh, there is a, a CEO that we interviewed for the book, Leslie uh, Stretch. He's the CEO at Medallia. His statement around uh, th- this topic included a commitment to hold his team's equity compensation at risk uh, as they worked on improving their representation of uh, blacks inside Medallia from 1% to 13% to meet the U.S. census. And I thought that was quite compelling. I haven't seen many others to take as bold a stand. A couple of years in, they have representation that has grown from 1% to almost 7%. I like the way you said you can't delegate culture. What's your view of the board's accountability for culture and then going a step below broad culture and behavior to diversity on boards and how the interrelationship of company culture and boards works? Two different questions. I think the board absolutely has to be involved in the oversight of culture. There's a lot of talk today around ESG. So the oversight of that area and involvement with with those topics is critically important. The, The best boards at least on an annual basis, uh, get a, a read on the culture and the, the way employees are experiencing the, the company. So there are metrics and reports that would you know, come into one of the board committees or the board in total at a minimum. And DEI, unlike four or five years ago, is definitely a board topic for leaders that are really serious about creating great cultures. Uh, it's not where I would have expected spending my time as a, a board member, but I gladly make available as much time as uh, required to be helpful. Mm-hmm. 
James, just conscious of your time. We'd like to end each podcast with some rapid fire questions. This is where we're going to ask you a set of five questions and we ask you to reply as quickly as possible. Are you ready? I'm ready to go. Fantastic. Right. First question. Um, can you tell us what are your favorite books? They could be business books, leadership books, fiction. What are the first, what are the first ones that come to mind? Uh, leadership Engine by Noel Tichy. Uh, mm -hmm. Last Word on Power by Tracy Goss uh, would be two of my favorites. And Doing What Matters uh, by one of my old bosses, Jim Kiltz, uh, would be the three. Fantastic. Uh, if you could play any Olympic sport, what would it be? Always basketball. Uh, <laughs> that would be a dream. What are your top three musical artists? Favorite musical artists would include uh, Will Downing, uh, Prince. Mm -hmm. um, wow, this is a tough one. You're, you're, you're pushing me here. Uh, Anita Baker mm -hmm. would be on my list. What, what's an item still left in your bucket list? Really, for me, uh, the, the focus of my work kind of moving forward around this whole topic of anti-racist leadership, uh, mm -hmm. hope to use the book as a catalyst for change. Uh, that's something I'm passionate about. And, you know, hopefully we'll make a, uh, a, a bit of a, a dent in the, the work that I think that sits ahead. And the last question for you, James, what's the one important skill that you think every person should have? I think the capacity, and I'm going to give you two things. I think the capacity to be a, a lifelong learner, kind of mm -hmm. this active learning over time. And I think for every leader, the, the, the skill of empathy translated into compassion so that you take some action. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our goal is to redefine a few more people's careers on what we have learned from you today and that people should also be reading your book about anti-racist leadership. Just to summarize a little bit, James, a couple of very interesting threads and learnings here. You had an unfortunate realization of inequity long before uh, many people did, but you talk about empathy and action. You look at your mother who instilled in you this sense of empathy and action and passion and I have to think when you immediately went to it's a people first as a leader, it's got to reflect a lot of your personal experiences. The fact that you led a food democratization uh, to bring organic at a price point that healthier foods could be everywhere, but it's still a people first approach to your business and your life. And the fact you say values create great work and great teams, they make the difference. This concept that we have to be aware of, we've talked so much in the last few years about DEI, but prove it again versus your commitment to promote on potential, not because you have to wait to prove it again, particularly if you're a diverse executive who's not being given that quick shot. Um, and this sense of diverse teams remembering that it may be harder to get going with whether it's cross-functional or ethnic and gender diversity, but we do know the better results come from those teams. Uh, because in your words, that's the accelerator, the accelerator for innovation and performance. I think we got to hold that close. And finally, this reminding ourselves of the lifelong learning and the LQ, as we call it, uh, and taking learning and empathy and action so that as leaders, we have to learn about anti-racist leadership 
but eventually, if, if we follow some of the things you've talked about from childhood to now, we'll just be leaders eventually and not having to learn to overcome whatever biases we have um, and whatever tough starts we have. So we thank you, both of us, Nanaz and I, thank you for taking us on this journey. We just got to put it to work for what you've talked to us about today, but thank you very much. Thank you so much both for having me. Just really enjoyed the, the discussion. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.